Welcome back to The Resilient Responder, a podcast dedicated to the men and women of our first responder and military communities. Here we talk about the job, mental wellness and resiliency, coaching, family, and living our best lives. Now, once again, here is your host, Keith Hanks. And welcome back to the Resilient Responder podcast, where we talk about everything in the resiliency world of first responders. My name is Don Pemberton. I am a 22 veteran of fire and emergency services. And today I have a very special guest. I have firefighter paramedic, Pat Corder. Pat, say hello to everybody. <laughs> you're you're a little bit muffled, but we'll hopefully we'll be able to walk through it. So uh, so Pat and stuff I, yeah, there you go. So Pat and I uh, rode rescue together, rode the medic together back at the Alameda City Fire Department. Uh, Pat and I got hired right about the same time. Uh, I got hired a little bit before Pat, and so so we were both new kids together, just running amok on the uh, on the island of uh, Alameda and figuring life out. And, uh, you know, Pat and I, we've stayed uh, relatively close in the last 12 years that uh, I have left uh, Alameda and gone on to the city of Henderson. And, you know, one of the things that, that Pat and I experienced together was a very difficult call um, as a water rescue situation. But uh, I wanted to give Pat an opportunity to uh, tell a little bit about himself. And then we're going to take the conversation where the conversation goes from there. So, Pat, once you take this opportunity, Opportunity, introduce yourself a little bit about yourself, and we will go from there. Try to give the briefest explanation possible. So, my name is Patrick Corder. I was born and raised in uh, the Bay Area um, here in California. So, it's uh, San Leandro, California, which is just uh, next to Oakland, California. So, um, born and raised here. Um, I went to um, parochial school my entire life. So, that's a Catholic school for the uninitiated. And uh, uh, ended up in Alameda in high school, going to St. Joe's uh, High School. So we were famous for Jason Kidd, um, if you're familiar with basketball. So um, I went to St. Joe's High School. Um, that was my original connection to Alameda. And obviously I had friends and family that lived there. And then um, I ended up going to school at UC Irvine, studying psychology. I graduated with a uh, BA in psychology um, and social sciences. And then uh, while I was down there, I, I had started the EMT um, the EMT work or working towards the EMT because um, I had friends that were doing it and it seemed like a, a, a good gig to, you know, work at night or make money or something like that and just keep me out of an office job. I'd worked as a, a merchant teller at a bank for a few years in college. Um, and then when I moved back up, I had every intention of uh, becoming a firefighter. So everything that I did um, once I moved back up to the Bay Area in 2003 was just, um, was just, you know, get on with the fire department. So I worked a BLS job here in the Bay Area. Um, ended up uh, working for um, uh, a Children's Oakland Hospital as a ward clerk. I wanted to be a tech, but they didn't have tech jobs, but they had a ward clerk opening. Um, and then I eventually got hired on as a, uh, as a paramedic at the um, Alameda Fire Department on January. Our official start date was January 14, 2008 for my class. So like you said, shortly after your class, you were already in. Um, you guys were still on probation. I say you guys because there were like two of you guys that were still um, probies. <laughs> they weren't. They weren't hiring big classes. Our classes it was the biggest class they'd hired in several years. At that point, they had gone through very minimal hiring for a while. Um, <clears throat> and the only other thing worth noting was that I, uh, I had the uh, the honor and privilege of doing my. Um, uh, uh, I had become a Oakland Oakland Fire offered a paramedic cadet academy at the time. Uh, back in the early 2000s, and I had the privilege of, of uh, you know, getting on with that program 
and getting my uh, my paramedic uh, basically through um, OFD. And I, the best part being um, was that I got to ride on um, the Oakland engine as my uh, as my internship. So that was that was great. Station four in Oakland. So um so yeah, that was it's pretty much a thumbnail. I did 15 years and 15 days in the fire department. It's worth noting that I uh, I am officially retired now. I'm off the books as of uh, January 29th, 2023, and uh, I found that out uh, unceremoniously as I received a letter on a Monday evening informing me that I had been retired uh, the previous morning. So that was good to figure out. And uh, yeah, I got retired out on a uh, PTSD claim. So, um, and that that whole process began um, a little over a year ago. So I'm sure we'll get into that later, but that's that's about as, uh, as thumbnails it gets. Oh, we, within the department, um, you know, and you can attest to this. I just uh, was very much just the, uh, the raise your hand person, like I'll do it, you know? Um, so just always was trying to be involved that way. I didn't, um, that's not worth getting into right now, but just in, in terms of like, I just found my, my niche was in, in terms of just like the work that I put in and especially with the union, I got on the executive board very quickly out of uh, probation. Um, so I was on the, I served on the executive board continuously for over 13 years, um, mostly as a trustee. Then I went to, uh, I became uh, president um, in 20, November of 2018. And then um, I was president for a little over a year went into my what was supposed to be the role of recording secretary which i always joked because i could i knew the difference between there there and there um <laughs> and then uh <laughs> and then uh and and ended and ended as recording secretary so i actually just finished my term while i was off uh, dealing with my workers comp claim um the only connection i had to the fire department was still doing um, just some of the auxiliary duties of the uh, recording secretary so that was the one thing i was able to finish um on my own terms in terms of going out um uh at the time i was supposed to so that's about as much as i can give it uh we'll get into it i'm sure but but that's that's about where i'm at and now so now i'm just trying to lean into being a 42 year old retired guy for the time being yes yes so so you did 15 years and 15 days in the fire service what was your yeah. favorite part of being uh, a fireman all the people and I, and when i say the people i mean obviously the people at work but then just the 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 people whose lives that you're able to make better, like on the, you know, whether it's on those individual calls. Oh, I also didn't mention too, I was a community paramedic for a long time. That also added a lot to my injury, which we'll get into. But um, so, yeah, I really had um, a lot of connection with people um, in that capacity. So definitely the people, definitely just like the, everything that wasn't running the calls, to be honest, you know, I didn't mind the calls at all, but like the, the calls were just like bumps in the road for me getting to chat with people. Nice. Nice. And so, uh, so for those that aren't aware out there, uh, would you mind just taking just a brief uh, moment and say, uh, just kind of give a description of what our, the uh, Alameda City Fire Department's community paramedic program was or is? <laughs> I've described this a lot of times, but it, you know, it, it, it kind of never gets easier. The basic way to describe it was the state at that time was looking at ways in which we could more efficiently deliver EMS services. So what they did was it was a statewide initiative. Um, I think they had 13 separate agencies at 11 different locations. So they had a couple agencies at combined locations that were working on different domains. And all these domains were looking at basically reducing wall times, reducing wait times, uh, reducing the need for uh, paramedics to basically be basic transport to um, hospitals and just sit on wait on walls and wait. Um, and it was supposed to be a two-year pilot program, which, which it did successfully. And then it just kept going on and on. We just kept, because it was successful, I, you know, the joke was victims of our own success. It was like, it just kept going on and on in perpetuity because at the time we understood that it was, this was kind of like the next 
not iteration, but the next thing that the fire department was probably going to be providing in terms of service. And um, it was better to be at the tip of the spear than behind the eight ball. So, um, so we got into it early. I was one of the, uh, we had originally six people uh, in the program. Uh, one of those members actually went to a different department. So we ended up with five. And then once I went in, it was supposed to be, we were going to, um, for the two years, we we're going to do six month um, uh, shuffle outs of people, you know, in and out of the office. Rotations. When I went in, yeah, rotations, right. When I went in, uh, in November of, uh, it was then 2015, that was the last time I ever, like I'd stayed in the office after that. Um, and that was for a variety of reasons. Um, but ultimately, you know, it, it fell into the same standard, um, line that I always told myself was I'm, 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 you know, helping somebody else out. I I'm keeping somebody else that's got kids from being in the office or something like that. I always found a reason to jump right. on the sword, you know, that whole, so uh, ra that raise your hand concept. Oh, like to say, by the way, STP, same 10 people. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, so you've mentioned that you've been recently retired out for a PTSD claim. And uh, I want to just kind of start as, as, as generally as possible. What would you say the first warning sign was that something had changed or that your coping and management abilities had started to be challenged? Um, I'm being completely honest about it. Like the first thing that really changed was like, I started uh, having panic attacks while driving on the freeway. And that was several years ago. Like I still haven't driven on a freeway in a long time. Like, and when I say driven on a freeway, I mean, I don't mean like hopping on a ramp and hopping right off the next ramp. Like I can do that, <laughs> but like driving for sustained periods of time on the freeway. So I still haven't really challenged myself with that. Um, but yeah, that happened a couple times early on. And, um, like, and when I say early on, I mean like, you know, maybe like six to seven years ago, but like few and far between. And then it just got to the point where that became like a trigger every time I was trying to like drive somewhere and, and like be off. And again, like, I, I don't, I don't think I, I didn't suffer with it when I was, when I was on the ambulance or anything like that, because it was part of the job. But then when it became something that wasn't a part of my everyday, um, everyday thing, I think it became way easier to, to have that. So that was the first sign. Um, the, when I knew stuff was getting really bad was in um, roughly November of, of 21. And that was when, um, at that point, it was kind of like a perfect storm. I'd had, I'd been on a jury trial for like seven weeks. It was a very bad case. Um, of course, I was asked to be the four person, even though I didn't want to be. It's just like the natural, like, hey, you're the guy. And okay, great. So I had that. I had obviously tons of work stuff that was going on. I was trying to like get, like kind of set things up to get out of the, like maybe not out of the the union, but just like less of a, less of a leadership role. But that just, you know, it's hard to find those opportunities. And of course, I'm a bit of a control freak, which I'm sure none of us are, but you know, that, that makes it hard too. So I was dealing with a lot of that. And then I literally, I tweaked my back, just tweaked it, pulling something out of the back of my rig. Um, I, I wrote it up. It was like, I was still at work and stuff, but I just couldn't work out. I couldn't work out because I tweaked my back. And like that, I think was a catalyst for like this two week period where I didn't, I couldn't work out because my back hurt. And then like, I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating. Like everything just started like adding on, adding on, adding on. We're in the holidays. Like I'm, I'm, I'm an only child. Like my mom is, is she lives alone. So we have my mom with us for a lot. It was just like this, all these things that just kind of kept feeling like they were piling on. And then, like I said, the biggest thing was probably just this, the sleep and, um, and not eating. And then I, the best way to describe it was I was basically in fight or flight mode at all times. Like my central nervous system was just like on it. Like, so the second I'd wake up at any time too, like, so if I got to sleep, let's say at like, you know, 10 o'clock or something like that, I'd probably wake up at like one and just be a buzz, just like wide awake, like, okay. And just thinking about a million different things. So I was just completely spinning, couldn't shut it down. 
Um, and then what really changed for me, I like, I recognized all these symptoms was just like, okay, well, I guess I just, you know, need to get back to working out. And so when that can happen and then, um, and then what changed for me was I was so exhausted. I got to the point where I was like, man, I, I, I can't imagine living like this for a long time. So I should probably just kill, kill myself. And like, when I, when that thought came into my head, I realized something had changed. And so I told my wife, Emily, um, pretty quickly, I'm like, yo, I got to reach out for help. Like something's different. Um, kind of gave her just a glossed over version. Like I, I wasn't very honest about like my stuff early on, just cause you know, we're all very protective of that. We're also men. So it's like the worst in terms of like being honest about when we're sick, injured or otherwise. So, um, so yeah, so, um, I called, I, I'm a Kaiser patient. I called Kaiser, um, Kaiser set me up with mental health services and I started that process. I also let one of my chiefs know pretty quickly on um, what was going on. Um, my admin was super supportive of me throughout. And, um, and then I basically white knuckled it through, <laughs> I white knuckled it through December um, and into January. I had a couple of weeks off that I had time to burn on the books. Um, I didn't take any time off uh, for the first year of COVID. So like I was just on, 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 I was working heavily with our homeless population. So I just felt this obligation to be at work and just be doing something. And then, um, and then, through that process, I, I told a couple other people, but kept it real close to my chest. Cause I just thought like, Hey, I just got to figure this stuff out and just get back in my routine. And then when stuff didn't get better and just got worse, um, that was when I was like, okay, I'm really spun. Cause I'm away from work, but none of the stimulus is changing. I'm still just on edge all the time, you know? And I didn't have the excuse of being at work to, to like, you know, say, well, this is why. So I got, like I said, I got hooked up in the Kaiser system. Kaiser, uh, you know, of course they were overwhelmed with everything. They set me up pretty early with the cognitive behavioral therapist, which is great but because of course I'm not dealing with that kind of stuff. I was dealing with heavier stuff. I think we got about five minutes into our first session together and he's like, okay, I got to stop you. I got to ask you like a battery of questions real quick. So he went through this like series of questions and he's like, all right, champ, you got PTSD. I don't know what to tell you. Like that, he's like, I can't even diagnose it. He's like, you have all the hallmark symptoms of it. Like, you know, of course I'm like crying on the other end of the, of the other end of the zoom. I'm like, okay. So I don't know what to do with anything. And um, so he put me into a higher level of care, but of course, because everything was saturated at, at that time, inundated with requests for care, I didn't actually get into a, a deeper level of the Kaiser program until March of 21. So wow. it's, uh, or wait, 22, 22, March of 22, sorry. Um, so yeah, it took a while. Um, with, the, with, with work and everything, I finally, my last day of work, um, like I said, I white knuckled it into January. Um, I started on a low dose of Lexapro, which I'm still on five milligrams, but I started on three milligrams. I think it was like January 7th. It was like a Thursday. So I remember I, I, I like left the office, went straight to the Kaiser pharmacy, picked it up and like started taking that medication. And then by like the next Tuesday, I did my regular thing, got up, got dressed for work, did all my stuff. And I like, literally got to the door and I like, couldn't leave. I was like, I'm done. So I, I called my chief, um, my operations chief. I'm like, yo, I'm done. He's like, great. I'll start the paperwork. Like he was just, he was waiting on me to do it basically. I mean, all the people that, that know me best and love me best were just waiting on me to like basically put my hand up and say, okay, I need help like more than I can give myself. And so that process began and the workers comp process uh, for me again, um, I, I was very, very lucky throughout that whole process. I had uh, wonderful people working with me. I got set up with an amazing doctor, Dr. David Green, who said, he said I could use his name. I asked him ahead of time, Dr. David Green um, uh, in Walnut Creek. Um, he's been an amazing, um, I mean, just an amazing advocate for me, first of all, but more importantly, just tremendous help through my process, you know? And I remember early on, he gave me like this anxiety app that basically gave me more anxiety. It was just basically like, hey, here's your anxiety. Like, here it is. Like, just keep checking in on it. Um, but 
through that process it started getting better i was like to, to be honest and full disclosure i was super suicidal for like the first three months just like i had i i lied about having they ask you every time you check in with kaiser you know and i was more honest about being having suicidal ideation but i was like totally lied about having any kind of plan which was total bs dude i had a plan i had a plan so um i, I wasn't intent on uh doing anything about it at that time but i very much had a plan so and like I said, it was all born out of like this exhaustion, just this exhaustion of um, of where I was at at the time. So, so yeah, I mean, oh, it's probably also worth noting too, real quick. Uh, I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression too. Shocking, I'm sure, but um, yeah. you know, the anxiety stuff goes back to childhood. Grew up in a in a household where my my dad was an alcoholic, so dealt with that since I was like five or six years old, and that was ongoing. So my anxiety found a place early on to to kick it within my head, and it just stayed there throughout my whole life. I just found a profession that really, really. Um, you know, it was like, Hey, you, you got anxiety. Here's a cup of coffee, you know, here's a seat for the next 30 years. Enjoy. So, so yeah, that's about as, I mean, that's about as good as it gets. Stuff started getting really better. Um, uh, after I went to a retreat that, you know, about, uh, Dong, it's the, through the first responder support network, uh, the retreat is, uh, so it's FRSN and the retreat is the uh, West coast post-trauma retreat WCPR. Um, it's out near Napa Valley and I am not for the record. I am not a, uh, I, I don't represent the, uh, the community. I'm not an affiliate with them. They don't pay me. I was a client. I went in June of, uh, 22 on the recommendation of my workers comp doc. And, uh, I've been back twice as a peer September of 22. And just recently in uh, February of this year, um, peer volunteer. And it, it changed my life. That place changed my life. And I'm, I'm happy to get into that place as well. But, uh, but yeah, that was the, that was the place that, that literally, um, it gave me the, uh, the courage <laughs> to say I was done, to say I was, I was tapped out. So, yeah, it's amazing yeah. that your uh, clinician actually recommended such a specific resource for first responders, because you hear just like your experience with your clinician in those first five minutes, you recognize that, Hey, this might not be the right guy for me. Not that culturally competence, that awareness of all of those things that we deal with specifically as first responders and just men, and to have a clinician to put you in that direction sounds like it was a, a major uh, a major change for your life. It helped tremendously. And, and two, for the record, I was very I was very against it early on. I was like, you know, retreat sounds like rehab. My dad was in rehab. I'm not, you know, I'm not a you know, I'm not drunk. Oh, for the record, too, I should probably also mention I stopped. I didn't. I don't struggle with alcohol, um, and we'll get into that in a second. But I did stop drinking. Um, officially in December of, uh, of 21, December 11, 21 was the last time I had a drink. And that was because at the time I'm like, first of all, I, I can tell you the day I drank because I had to go do obligation drinking. So I was like going to a party. So I was at a work party. So I'm like, I got to look like I'm like, you know, everything's okay. So, you know, drinking the work party, but that was it. But, that, but you know, like I said, I didn't struggle with alcohol, alcohol. I wasn't using it as a like, uh, coping mechanism, but it was a depressant and I was massively depressed and suicidal. So I'm like, well, this is one thing that I can control in, my, in this equation of everything that feels out of control right now. Um, so that helped tremendously as well, because obviously, you know, um, it does it does help your brain. It gives your brain a rest when you're not drinking any kind of alcohol. And the way I drank too, again, I, like I said, I don't struggle with alcohol, but the way I drank was was typically binge drinking. I mean, like any time that you would talk about it, like in, in terms of like going to a doctor's office, well, how many drinks per week? Right. It's like, well, you know, not that many, like, you know, 10, okay. Oh, throughout the week or something like that. No, it's like, no, that's Saturday, Sunday, you know? And, and like, right. I'm being conservative on that too. You know, I weigh 200 and something pounds. So it's like, it, it does take a bit to get a little bit, you know, tipsy, but the sad part for me is again, reevaluating how I thought of alcohol and stuff like that. 
because my dad struggled with it, I didn't want to struggle with it. So I get that. That was good. But I always was like, well, I don't drink to have a drink. I drink to get drunk. Right. right. So it's like, I could never like enjoy a drink. It was like, oh, I'm drinking with a purpose of getting. So if I'm drinking, I'm drinking to get intoxicated. So that's not a healthy relationship, whether or not you want to believe it or not. You know, like I said, I didn't struggle with it, but it's not a healthy relationship. So I still haven't had a drink. I've been, um, I've been off booze for, you know, like 14 months now going on. Um, and, uh, I still feel good. I haven't found reasons to drink yet. Like that's the whole thing. I've found more reasons not to drink. Like my, my, my recovery is my recovery. So it's like, Hey man, like I'll just keep it up. So, and it's way easier on the bills too, when we go out, <laughs> so I can just yeah. eat more food. I can just eat almost looking at, almost looking at it like a tool than a, uh, something that you would actually enjoy. But the, you know, the first thing that I want to point out that I think so many people are going to resonate with is that, you know, we do have those events where there's that, that one thing that happens. You run that one call, you have that one experience, you have that one thing, but far, far, far more common is that cumulative effect. You talked about you being under the stress of the jury trial, uh, the back injury, uh, impacting your ability to work out, which for so many first responders is their outlet, you know, getting a good sweat on pushing yourself, you know, having that routine in your day where you are getting into the gym and working out. And then we talk about that, that eating and sleeping. And so many people will say, oh, well, I'm a firefighter. I'm a paramedic. I'm a police officer. It's just normal that I don't sleep. And it's very easy to say that. And it's a lot harder to recognize when your sleep patterns are being compromised due to the thoughts, the feelings, those emotions that we're having that are preventing you from getting a good night's sleep. How is your sleep doing right now? Way better. Um, so when I came back from the retreat, one of the first things that my wife noted was uh, that I slept differently. She's like, oh, you don't snore the same way. And I was like, well, define. She's like, well, you <laughs> snore. It's like, you still snore, but like, it's more of like a purr. Like you don't like, bah, like the, the old, you know, the old, like, um, you know, dormitory ripper status. Yeah, the chainsaw. You know, you go, yeah, you go sleep next to the other guy that snores kind of thing. So, um, <laughs> so yeah. And then what I realized too was, um, and again, this is like processing trauma through your body and the body keeps the score type stuff. But, you know, um, the other thing I realized too was, my, my back and my neck and my shoulders and everything felt way better in the mornings. I'd always had like sore back and shoulders. And what I realized is I was like fighting in my sleep. I was tensing up. I was like mm -hmm. fighting. I'd clench my jaw, all that stuff. And like, so I'd wake up sore no matter what I did. And then like in, in months since sleep got better, it's like, oh, well, I'm not sore the same way anymore. And I'm not, and I realized too. So the snoring might've been because I was clenching my jaw a certain way. I still snore, but it's like not the same again. Um, but yeah, just, uh, and it, of course, now that I don't have to really set alarms, like I, you know, it's, it's a lot easier, but it's gotten much better. I started using a weighted blanket after the last retreat that I just went to. Uh, one of the other peers had it mm -hmm. and uh, um, she gave it to me as she said, um, she loved it, but it, it, it made her hip sore. I'm like, sign me up, throw it on. So like that's helped a ton. Um, liquid melatonin, I just uh, started using occasionally. That's helped way better than the pills. If you tried the pills and the pills don't work, try the liquid melatonin. It's, it's, mm -hmm. It works. <laughs> so um, but yeah, everything's gotten way better. Um, and just in terms of being the biggest thing for me, Don, is being able to go back to sleep. So when I do wake up, um, cause I'm 42, so I, you know, get up to go to the bathroom, you know, a couple of times during the night and stuff like that. The difference is when I get when I come back to the bed, I go back to sleep, which is huge, nice. super huge. So yeah, yeah that's no, the biggest there's, thing. 
nothing worse than laying in bed, staring at the ceiling, waiting to, uh, you know, be able to do that. And that's, and that's one of those skills that you learn, you know, in the fire service, you know, you get up at, you know, 11, 12, one, two, three, four, you get up, you run that call, you're back at the station, you know, within, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, and you're physically able to get back to sleep. And there's so many individuals that once they run that one call at night, they're just up. And that's it, you know, whether it's at 1.30 at night or at 4.30 at night, there's just no hope of getting back to sleep. And, you know, you have such a different experience between those individuals that are able to get back to sleep and not. And, and to me, there, there is not enough attention paid to the station alerting system. And we talk about those individual dorms, those individual drops, and whatever that cost is, you know, to wake up the entire station when the rescue has a, uh, you know, a minor medical call that doesn't require the engine or in a different district where the uh, medic is the only one that wakes up and it wakes up everyone in the station. I think there needs to be more attention paid to the psychological and physiological impact of waking up, even if you don't leave the station. Noted too. I think I think that the engine and truck should absolutely know every time that the uh, that the crews go out. I think they should absolutely know. I got sick of the questions in the morning. Oh, you guys got out? Like it's like you know we got up. I heard your snoring stop for like five seconds, dude. <laughs> yes. So, so yeah, no, but I I I I'm I'm totally on board. Mercifully, um, our department, like many others, has started moving towards those as we start like renovating the stations and stuff like that. Um, it's a slow process. I mean, it's just like anything else and government work or the fire industry, you know, the joke is always two weeks, two weeks, two weeks, right? So it's just like, you know, just keep pushing it out two weeks. So, but yes. yeah, I, t I totally agree. Yeah, no, at, right now in my station, um, we're, we're getting new stations and as we're retro retrofitting and renovating things, we're getting those individual drops and it is an absolute game changer. And uh, I would much rather have that awkward conversation in the morning, being on the truck, waking up and go, oh man, that was a fantastic night of sleep. And rescue's like, yeah, yeah go pound salt. <laughs> so, hey, so let's take a break here. Let's uh, have a word from our sponsor, uh, 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 the from the Resilient Responder Podcast, First Responder Coaching. And then we are going to come back and we are going to start off talking about resilience and what it means to be a resilient responder in today's first responder world. So thank you all very much. And we're going to take a break right here and pick it back up on the other side. Coaching is here now for all first responders and their families. When it comes to the job and the stresses that come with it, we at First Responder Coaching know exactly how it can affect every aspect of your life and the lives of those around you. That's because we are first responders and their families. First responders are well-versed in reacting to a situation. It is literally what we do as firefighters, law enforcement, dispatch, and EMS personnel. When trauma enters our lives, we react to it by tucking it down away somewhere in our minds but we carry it with us and never really goes away. We need to stop carrying trauma into every aspect of our personal and professional lives. It's time to start having proactive, powerful conversations right now to gain a better balance in the responder's whole life. This is true for their families, especially the spouses. Take that first step in making some of the most important improvements in your life. Visit www.1strespondercoaching.org now to make an appointment to chat with FRC. A coach will reach out, and before you know it, you'll be on your way to living a proactively fit lifestyle. And we're back with the Resilient Responder podcast. I'm here with my friend, Pat Porter, a firefighter paramedic with the City of Alameda Fire Department, who has recently been retired with a PTSD claim. And we're having an amazing conversation together about 
what led him to that uh, conclusion of his career and what things look like now. And so we talked about sleep. We talked about the factors that led him into the diagnosis of the PTSD. And I want to change gears just a little bit. And I, uh, Pat, I want to know what, how would you define resilience as it relates to first responder life? Hmm. It's an interesting question, to be honest. Um, I mean, I mean at, at its core, resilience is, is basically the, the um, it goes back to the adage of, you know, get knocked down seven times, get up eight, right? It's like coming back from, from more, which I think we can all appreciate. And, you know, I'll just speak to the fire service, but certainly first responders. I mean, that's part of the ethos. That's how they train us. It's, it's uh, you know, certainly in police and fire, paramilitary organizations. Like they break you down to build you up. Like that's the point. Um, so resilience in that in that capacity. But I think resilience in this, in the way that it, you know, that we're talking now and, and resilience in terms of like emotional resilience and resilience to be able to, um, I think for me, what it comes down to is a couple of things. Uh, one is, is, is the term grace, which came up a lot for me, which so that's, you know, effectively for me, what grace is, is, is starting with being kind to myself, which many of us struggle with. I know I, I was a horrible self-critic and continue to be to this day, um, but I'm getting better at it. So starting by giving myself grace, being kinder to myself, you know, uh, you know, um, I, I, I jokingly, but not jokingly, like will tell the story of like, I'm the kind of person that will literally like, I'll be taking a shower and beat myself up for a, an IV I missed on a routine medical call. Like when I say routine, like the person really didn't need an IV, but I was trying to be nice for the, the nurses. Routine medical call, like 11 years ago or 12 years, like literally, and all, and I know the house, I know the people, like, of course, and that's the other thing too. Like, that's the one tough thing about being, I live in Alameda still. My wife and I live in Alameda. She was born and raised in Alameda. I went to school here. I worked here. I was, I was a, you know, a public figure here. People know me. The, the running joke with my wife and friends is like the mayor of Alameda when we go out, cause it's like, you can't go out and not see somebody. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's just, so there's that part of it. Um, and, and just like the, you know, again, going back to the self-critic, just being nicer to yourself. So grace being one thing, but the other thing is courage, courage for, for you know, the people that end up in this, this position that, that have the courage to, to be honest with themselves. And I, I guess honesty is part of it too. Honest with yourself to know that you, you're, you're over your skis, that you can't handle what you used to be able to manage or like what you thought you managed well. That's the other thing too. What you thought you managed well, you didn't manage well. You really didn't. The people around you that love you best know that you didn't manage it well. They were just nerfing the world for you. So there's that aspect. But yeah, so I just think it, it's for me, resilience goes back to, you know, I, I jokingly used to say um, two things. One, there was this meme that was like this hard to swallow pills. So it was like, you know, hard to swallow pills. It's a meme, two pictures, hard to swallow pills and the pills that were out. I made one that said, being a firefighter doesn't make you a good person because it doesn't. It's a job. It's an occupation. It doesn't make you a good people. I know plenty of bad people that have been in this occupation. It's bad to say. I know great people too. Don't get me wrong, but we all know them. We all know them. And for whatever reason, however they end up being those bad people is, is like that, their journey. But, you know, I empathize with it differently these days. But again, um, the resilience goes back to the last courageous thing I did for this job, I think, um, was, was admit that I had the 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 one before that the the most courageous thing i did before that was swear the oath because i knew what i was getting into now wide eyed wide open they didn't recruit me nobody came to my house and said would you like to be a firefighter at the city call me to fire no they you know i said i want to do it mm -hmm. so that was the last courageous thing i did and i know most of us struggle with the thank you for your service. well some people don't but thank you for your service stuff it makes you cringe right like ugh, like i'm doing my job right like 
go give it to somebody that wants it, you know, but, uh, but yeah, I think that all comes back to that. It's just that the ability to, you know, again, get up and come back, but really it's, it goes back to honesty and, and the courage to admit that you got a problem. So that's what it means to me. I don't know what it means to anybody else. Right. No, I like that. Grage, grace, courage, and honesty. Those are three, three hallmarks of the firefighter profession. Um, so, so talking about the stigma of mental health, you had mentioned that there was about a three month period where you felt like you couldn't imagine continuing living in this state and that there were individuals around you. What, what efforts do you think are being made, if any, to kind of break down that stigma and make mental health an acceptable, you know, dinner conversation or conversation around the uh, coffee table? I think it's getting there for sure. Um, I remember after I started my process, you know, talking to, to um, you know, one of my close friends who happened to be the chief that I, you know, disclosed to and started the process with. Um, his whole thing was like, we're not doing enough. We're not doing enough. You know, we got to do more. And I'm like, whoa, like, I'm like, slow your roll. I'm like, okay, I get it. And I understand the want to do a lot, but first of all, these things take time. Any of these things take time. And real, realistically it's culture um, that we're trying to change. We're trying to change a culture of a very male dominated. Um, uh, I, I'll just manhood measuring egotistical, um, you know, leave your feelings at the door. I mean, that, that that's, it's all operational stuff. I understand how we get there. Um, but at the same time, um, we've had the training. Like I, like I was on the CISM team. I continue to be, I'm, I'm going to be a, uh, um, peer volunteer, um, now in retirement for our team, but, uh, um, I was on the CISM team and I, and I did all the training and I was aware of it. I was the best. I'm really good at giving other people advice. I I'm terrible at taking my own. Um, which I'm sure nobody appreciates, but, uh, um, but, uh, I, I, what I told my chief, I was like, yo, like my training kicked in just like anything else. Like, I want you guys to realize like my training kicked in when my thoughts changed, I was like, yo, that's not right. Like I'm thinking about killing myself earnestly, like something's wrong. So I was like, I want you guys to recognize that my training kicked in and I might just be the, t I, I'm 42 years old. I'm retired out on PTSD. To me, I'm kind of the tip of the iceberg, the way I see it. You know, I'm, I'm going to be the beginning of what unfortunately is probably going to be a lot more people um, being honest about what they're suffering with and raising their hands and going and hopefully going through um, a recovery process that has been as successful as mine has been. Um, but I'll, I'll do more. It's just this, it's just talking about it. It's getting it out there. It's making it accessible. I've had members tell me from my department that my injury has made and my, and, the, and my discussing my injury has made it um, more of a palatable or more discussable issue now at the stations. I mean, if it was up to me, I'd go in and do debriefings with them every morning, you know, if it was, if it was, if it was me, but I can't do that. I mean, that's not realistic either. But um, my thought is that, that in, Stigma is being removed. It gets in the process of being removed because there's people like me that, you know, people would have never suspected, you know, had all this stuff going on. And then it's like, oh yeah, it's been going on my entire life. And they're like, oh wow. Okay. So it puts a face to it, you know, for a lot of people. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's, uh, I think we're in the process of removing the stigma. You know, we really are. No one, no one like beat me up for my, at least not to my face. No one beat me up for my injury. So, yes, you know, well, I'm sure the Bra Brazilian jiu-jitsu might have something to do with that. <laughs> the belt only covers two inches on the on the back of my ass. I got to cover the rest. So, right, right. So, so continuing that line of thinking. So you were struggling with this, 
And you mentioned several times that those around you that knew you best knew that something just wasn't right. If there's someone out there that has someone that they recognize that exact same thing, that this person has changed, that they're different, what advice do you have for those individuals out there that may have someone on their crew or a loved one and something has changed that they may not be able to quite put their finger on it? But what what do you think would have worked or what would be the best approach, in your opinion, to those individuals? I think most of us avoid having the hard conversations because it does we don't want to make it awkward. Uh, but I think that's like, honestly, like those are the types of, of questions that we need to ask each other, especially when you think someone's suffering, especially when you think they might be suicidal, especially when you think that they're really struggling. It's like you have to just put yourself out there like, I think most of us, especially men, struggle with like, I'm not going to say the right thing or I'm going to screw something up or I can't fix this, right? That's another big thing. I want to fix it, fix it. It's like sometimes you just need to listen. Like you just need people just want to talk. They don't want you to fix anything. Like, I mean, most married men probably understand this, like, or, you know, or most men that have been in a relationship, like, you, you know, you have your spouse or your partner that comes to you with a problem and you're just like, well, how can I fix it? They're like, that's not this, that's not what this discussion is about. This is about me just unloading my problems. You don't need to fix anything. So, so yeah, just um, having the uncomfortable conversations, but like one of my best friends at the department um, at one point when, you know, cause he was checking on me frequently and he just straight up asked me, he's like, look, dude, you know, I don't know anything about this stuff. He's like, but I know that you have guns at your house. Do I need to come get your guns? Like just straight up. Do I need to come get your guns? Is it that bad? And I was like, well, okay. I appreciate you asking. No, you don't. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that was, and I know that was, and he told me that he's like, it was really hard for me to ask. That probably one of the hardest things I'd rather ask, but he's like, I wanted to make sure that I asked. And it's like, that's, I think that's what the most important thing is, is don't be afraid to start the conversation. Don't be afraid to ask the hard question because you're going to kick yourself more over the questions that you didn't ask if someone actually ends up doing the, the, the bad thing, right. Or, or like hurting themselves or hurting somebody else. Um, it's just very hard to approach those subjects. How, how every, anybody does it. It's really up to them. It's an individual thing. It's kind of based off of the situation that presents itself. But at the same time, you got to find a way to just kind of open that floodgate and get it out there. Right. And we, we talk to individuals that struggle with mental health in the fire service. And we hear those same things over and over and over again. The workers comp system is broken. I had terrible ther therapists. The, the system works against those individuals. What, what advice do you have for somebody that might be in a similar situation or that might be looking at the possibility of stepping into that world of my current coping mechanisms are no longer getting me to where I need to be. I need to step forward into getting more help. What, what advice would you have for somebody out there that's considering stepping foot into unknown territory with trying to get help as a first responder? Back to what we talked about with the resilience, right? So honesty with yourself, um, compassion for yourself, grace, give yourself grace. Um, and then just reach out, be vocal. Um, um, don't suffer in silence, like reach out to people that you trust. It doesn't mean that you have to share your story with everybody. Like I've kept my stuff really quiet. I think most people don't know that I retired. Um, or at least most people that, you know, uh, Facebook friends, acquaintances, right? Like people that you know, but like, aren't like super tight. Right. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's really just being honest with yourself and then just, and then just reaching out and continuing to reach out. Like you do have to advocate for yourself. I can't, it, it's tough, especially when you're in the, the muck. I get it. Um, I was there, like you're talking to a person who was like, you know, when our, when my, you know, relatively new whirlpool <laughs> dryer required service, I'm like, should I 
you know, get the service call worked out or just like, you know, figure out a way to go kill my, like, that's how bad it was at the time. So like, I get it. I, I was in, I was in the, you know what, um, but you, I really, the people around me, uh, like reaching out to people around, around you, like it's, it's why it's so important to have like at least just a couple of close friends that you can be honest with and talk to. And then if you don't have that, just any resource that's available, I mean, there's tons of resources like the, uh, first responder support network again, which I'm not affiliated with. Um, their website has a ton of resources available that you can use immediately. So it's like point, click, boom, boom, boom. Not just like sign up for the retreat or whatever, but more importantly, like here's resources that you can connect with almost immediately that can get you help you need in real time, you know? And that's just, that's just it. That's goes back to, you know, most of us are great advocates for each other, great advocates for our, you know, our, our fellow firefighters or our patients, but really, really are terrible at advocating for ourselves, especially when um, it's a weakness in ourselves, you know? And I mean, I don't want to, I, I don't want to say struggle with saying weakness, right? But that's the way it felt at the time. It felt like it was a weakness. Now it feels like more of a strength, you know, on the, on the backside of it. But at the time it felt like a weakness, like, oh, you know, I'm like, you know, I would always go back to these, you know, these phrases in the fire service, you know, asset versus liability. I always wanted to be an asset. I don't want to be a liability, but I knew when I was at my worst, I was like, I'm an absolute liability, not only to myself, but more importantly to everybody else. Like, you know, I think that's the thing I feared most within the fire service too. So I was never worried about myself. I was like, what if something happens to somebody else? Like that was, that would be something that I couldn't live with. So, so yeah, it, it just goes back to just reaching out, hopefully to the circles and the network of people that you have around you. You know, and then if not, just any other resources out there, but just keep reaching out. Do not stop. And you just got to keep. It took hard work to get really messed up in my case. And it took a lot of hard. It's taking a lot of hard work to get out. And it's a lifetime process. It's, I, this never goes away. I'm stuck with this for life. I accept it for what it is. And I'll just keep going on. But, you know, um, yeah, it's a, it's a process. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't know how much you've uh, paid attention to what's been going on in the Vegas area, but with the fire department that I've been working for, for the last 12, almost 13 years, we've had uh, five individuals take their life in the last three years. Um, both uh, uh, two have been on duty and three were either recently retired or had retired for a little bit. And the one thing that has stuck with me about what how my chief is kind of grappling with all this is that we need to treat mental health challenges no different than physical health challenges you know you've literally you're literally walking around with a broken bone unfortunately that broken bone is inside of you and it's not as easy to to be seen you're not walking around with a cast you're not you know you're not walking with a limp but your injury is is just as much real to you as it is a, a broken bone. So, um, so I appreciate you mentioning the, uh, the resources out there, the WCPR, the, the uh, website associated with them. Do you have any advice for the next generation or for the people that are coming up, whether they are currently experiencing challenges in mental health or not? What, what do you think that you wish was told to you before you started having those challenges with uh, that you were facing? I think the new generation is doing all right. I think it's easy. I think, um, you know, I was Gen X. I was the tail end of Generation X. Um, I was very accustomed to every generation prior to, you know, ours and the generation previous. So everyone thought that the next generation just sucked. It's like, these kids suck, you know? It's easy to say, right? These kids don't have the same work ethic. These kids work differently than I did. This, But like what I finally told one of my buddies is like, um, yeah, all the stuff that we did, the way that we did, it really didn't work out too well. Like I'm messed up. You're, you know, you're messed up. Like a lot of us are messed up. Like we're not doing too well. And like these kids for as much as like, it's like, yeah, they don't have the same work ethic or something like that. I say kids, of course, but they're like, you know, 
Right. A lot of them are like they, some of them were born after I graduated high school. So I can say kids, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but a, a lot of them are very good at setting boundaries. Like they've grown up and like, you know, it was easy to say, oh, this is the generation where everybody gets a medal. But at the same time, they were also the generation that people actually asked them about their feelings. They cared about and like genuinely like, like inquired. And they were more inquisitive about other people's feelings and stuff like that. So it's, it's easy to say, like, just push them aside. Like they don't, these don't rep, these kids don't represent us. It's like, no, like we're the old people. Like I'm the old guy that's mad at kids on my lawn these days. You know what I mean? It's just like, I'm the old, I'm the old school and the old school way worked until it didn't work. And maybe this new school way is working. So my advice to the younger generation is keep it up. Um, look to the, uh, to the people, um, <laughs> like me that have gone before you that are being honest about what we struggle with and ask us questions. And, and, um, you know, I, I tell my guys all the time, like I am an open book. Like I will tell you when it's like time, I'll call time out if I need to like take a break or something like that. But like I told them at my last union meeting this January, I was like, I have nothing left to give you people. I have nothing left. I cannot throw ladders. I cannot pull hose. I cannot start IVs. I can't, you know, innovate people. I can't do any of that stuff. No more water rescue swimming. That's it. I'm done. They kicked me off the rigs. I'm done. I got paperwork, you know, I can get a dog and a placard and everything. Um, what I told them was like, the only thing I have to get back now is, is my words, is this, is my experience, my journey. And to hopefully provide you, you know, hopefully if the worst case scenario, a member's having a struggling, is struggling, they can reach out to me and find a safe place to land. Cause like I told them, I'll never judge you for the way you feel or what you say or how you say it. I'll tell you if you're, if you're messing up, I'll happily tell you that, but I will never judge you for messing up um, or how you get there. Um, but two, just again, just, you know, in, in doing this and, 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 and showing people that there is another side to the suffering, like it doesn't have to be suffering without purpose, um, that there is, there is life beyond this, this occupation. Like this, like I jokingly said, like, this is always plan A. I talked to every single therapist, uh, you know, that I worked with in the beginning. And every one of them asked me, well, what's plan B? They literally all asked the same question. What's plan B? I said, there was never a plan B. And I was doing this until I, until I reached retirement age, you know? And here I find myself at 42. I was not supposed to have this conversation with Don Pemberton, you know, on President's Day in 2023, you know, about my retirement from the fire department. But here I am. Um, so that's just what it is. And it goes back to acceptance and all that, you know, all the things that I can and can't do are just, are they, they are what they are and I'll give back in the way that I can, you know, service is important to me. So this is the way that I can serve, um, others and more importantly, myself too. It is, it is a form of filling my own cup. So, um, self-care was something I struggled with for a long time. I'm better at now. Um, so, so yeah, it's, uh, that's what I'm able to do these days. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And it's been amazing having this conversation for, with you. And last year I went through a, a life coach training. And during that training, I recognized that one of the words that almost seemed foreign to me was compassion. And that compassion starts with yourself, having compassion for yourself, knowing that you might not have things figured out, knowing that you might need help, knowing that there are things beyond your control that still concern you, but we have so much influence on those things within your console, within your control and being able to positively impact those. And so that, that compassion can go a long ways and, and, you know, dovetailing in that, uh, that grace, courage, honesty, and, you know, just not judging and those, those are all really, really important things, you know, whether you're in emergency services or not. So, so Pat, it's been an amazing time chatting with you. It's been great catching up with you. It's great hearing the other side of the story. That's, that's hard to, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to have this conversation on a text and, but, you know, have asking those difficult questions and asking those things that, 
are going to get beyond that surface level because every time we pass somebody say, Hey, how's it going? Like, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. And you know, sometimes we're good and sometimes we're not. And finding those opportunities to go beyond that that layer and, you know, peeling back that onion to, to see what's down there sometimes, you know, can make a huge difference in someone's life. So I think we've had an incredibly powerful conversation and I appreciate your time. Is there anything that you wanted to share or wanted to uh, wrap up with before we uh, sign off? Where do you begin to process something that you didn't start, you know, you didn't plan on ending so soon? I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of, I'd like to thank, you know, obviously um, my wife, first and foremost, Emily, she's my rock. She was there for me like the whole time. So um, thank her. Thank my mom. Um, thank all my, my, my work friends, my, my, uh, you know, outside of work friends, um, everybody. I mean, the, the, again, my, <laughs> The workers comp people like they were good to me like the city was good to me um admin was good to me i'm lucky i'm blessed in that capacity um my doctor dr green again uh first responder support network wcpr um all those people i mean they literally changed the course of my life um so yeah i'm just i, I experience gratitude every day on a daily basis and i'm present too i'll just I'll, i will say this I'll, I'll say this is the last thing the last parting advice because it really spoke to me um, when I was, uh, when I was going through all my stuff, I, I suffered with anxiety and depression, which I don't think that most people are, uh, you know, um, unfamiliar with in this, in this occupation, but someone pointed out anxiety is when you can't stop worrying about the future. Depression is when you can't stop thinking about the past and like the present is now. Um, and, uh, so what I work on these days is being present. I don't, I don't focus on the past as much as I used to. And I certainly don't worry about the future as much as I used to. So it's helped tremendously, you know? Meditation helps to look into meditation, even if you're bad at it. I meditate every morning. I'm not great at it, but I do it every morning. It's a good thing for my central nervous system. It helps let, let my system know, hey, I don't need to go on a call. Everything's good. Um, and then exercise and, and nutrition and sleep. I mean, it's all, the, it's all the stupid stuff that we know, but it's stuff that we don't really work at. So yeah, that's about it, man. Thank you for having me on. It's great seeing you. Yes, it's great seeing course, you. Man. Yeah, no, man, I, I love you. I, I am proud of everything that you've done. I'm grateful for the, the, you know, where you find yourself in this next stage. And, you know, I'm excited for you. I think that you've got some awesome things ahead of you. And I think if you can just, you know, find, find your new niche and that plan B, then I think that what you've, what you've gone through, what you've achieved so far is, is just the beginning. So keep up the good work, keep that positive attitude. And I look forward to seeing what you're going to accomplish next. Yeah, you bet, man. Well, thank you all so much for sitting in on a conversation with Pat and I. I am grateful for all of you out there that are listening, for those that are finding value in what we're bringing forth with the Resilient Responder podcast. Thank you to our sponsor, First Responder Coaching, and we look forward to seeing you again in our next episode. Be safe out there, guys.